Thank you, church, for uh, letting me get to be here. I know Brother Gaddis is the one that invited, but I've absolutely loved being here every step of the way and felt more pampered than I ever have uh, by Southwest Baptist Church and Brother Gaddis and, and uh, just the love we've experienced in the fellowship. I'm uh, very thankful for the, the people I've got to spend some time with over this past Weekend, uh, I think uh, Jonathan Scruggs been a big blessing. Uh, Jude Buffington also big blessing. Uh, just really being a big help in a lot of the preparation parts of what we did here this weekend, and and then Brother Gaddis uh, being uh, just supportive of this, and um, very thankful. I've it's been about <clears throat> four or five years in the kind of making to do something like this, and um, there's a lot that goes behind what that story is, but. Um, uh, very thankful that uh, he sees that vision, and I hope that uh, your church has at least had a spark happened and that you guys move with it and, and make it important. Uh, I, I understand that the entire Word of God is important, uh, but the first 11 chapters are critical, critical, and it's important that we are assured of what those things are. And uh, today I gave a lot of answers and I had to rush through them quick and I'm sorry for making everybody late. So um, I don't do that very often, do I, Miss Esther, ever? So open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter number three. And if you can stand with me as we read the scriptures, Genesis chapter number three. Just going to look at a couple verses and uh, today, tonight, what we're going to do is give you kind of uh, an Old Testament survey. Um, so don't, I heard some groans over there. Okay. Uh, Old Testament survey that you'll enjoy, I hope. I'm going to do my best to make it enjoyable. I didn't put slides together for this one, so use your imagination. But you've had plenty of pictures uh, to help you have that imagination helped. Genesis three fourteen. It says, and the Lord God said unto the serpent, because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field upon thy belly. Thou shalt go and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Tonight we finish out the last three C's. We've talked about creation in how many days? Six days. We talked about corruption, the fall of man. We've talked about catastrophe, the flood, and all the implications that that has. Uh, we talked about confusion this morning in Sunday school. And tonight we're going to look back at uh, the, the, one of the curses that happened that I, I purposely skipped in our series and want to look at tonight and see how it flows through the scripture. So we're going to look at Christ, cross, consummation. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for being good to us. We pray that you will have your way and your will in our time of study here tonight. Uh, help even the most distracted heart uh, be focused tonight on your word. And you'd help create a, a greater love and appreciation for your word in our hearts. If you haven't already, uh, help tonight for people to have that. And we thank you for what you'll do in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One of the things that I um, have been challenged to do from scripture and so forth when it comes to my own uh, personal prayer life is to have 
an entrance into the, into the holy place with thanksgiving. Enter into his courts with praise. And so what I intend to do is to start off with thanksgiving. I have here my, what I call my thanksgiving list. I have a couple of them, but this is one that I kind of is my major overview of my things that I'm thankful for. And, and points in my life where I feel like things have been major influencers in my faith. Obviously, I would say my salvation is right there at the top. I'm very thankful for Ralph Shorty being courageous enough to tell me about Jesus and leading me to him. Absolutely thankful for that. Thankful Brother Sam is on my list. Very thankful for Brother Sam as being my first pastor. Thankful for Southwest Baptist Church. The people here, you're so precious to me. Thankful for Brother Decker, Joe Decker. Uh, his father to me, and I, I love him very much. And that's his father-in-law, but he's special to my heart. Very special. Thankful for Heartland. Thankful for my wife and my children and how they bless me. And I'm thankful for my parents and my, and my sister and brother-in-law and her kids. But one of the things I like to focus on as well is on who my God is. And I have on this list as well some of his attributes. And I, and I focus on those attributes and I say, God, I'm thankful for this about you, that you were this. I'm thankful that you're gracious. I'm thankful that you are a great gift giver and you give gifts to people who don't deserve them. I'm thankful that you're sovereign, that you're in complete control. I'm so thankful when I look at the world the way it is, I don't have to go, it's chaos because he's still in control. I'm thankful that he's holy and cannot sin and hates my sin and helps me not to want my sin either. I'm thankful that he's wise, that he does everything without mistakes. I'm thankful that he's eternal. He always was and always will be. I'm thankful that he loves me and that he wants what's best for me. I'm thankful that he's good. I'm thankful that he's patient, that he holds back wrath that I deserve. But my favorite attribute of God is that God is faithful. Faithful. God always keeps his promises. Always keeps his promises. Numbers 23, 19 says this, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Uh, hath he said and shall not he do it? Or hath he spoken and shall not he make it good? God cannot lie. He doesn't need to repent and turn away from his promises. He keeps his word. Psalm 36, 5, thy mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens and thy faithfulness reacheth unto the clouds. Isn't that amazing? That it's, it's, his faithfulness is beyond measure. That's the idea. Deuteronomy 7, 9, know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. He keeps covenants, he makes promises, and he continually does so. Second Timothy, I love this one, chapter two. Paul is writing to Timothy here and he says, this is a faithful saying. For if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. If we suffer, we also shall reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. But look at this, if we believe not, yet he abideth faithful he cannot deny himself. He keeps his promises regardless of whether you choose to believe them or not. Right. We've been in our creation series 
in these last few days. And one of the things we've seen is that God, when he made the world, that it was a very good world. No disease, no pain, no death, a world without sin. And God gave one restriction to the man. I put you in the garden. You can eat of all the trees. You can freely eat of all the trees. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Apparently, it didn't take very long for Adam to do that. It says that the woman was deceived. But if you remember 1 Timothy chapter number 2, it says that the man wasn't deceived. He ate the fruit with eyes wide open, knowing he was disobeying God's command. And as I said this morning, a little bit in, the, in, in, in our class and also specifically in the, in the high school class, junior high and high school class, that when God was tempting or when Satan was tempting the, tempting the man and the woman, the, the authority got completely reversed. It was now the beast that was leading the woman and the woman leading the man. And that whole thing flipped on its head. So by God, at that point, Genesis chapter 3 begins to bring curses upon the world. He curses the woman. He curses the man. He curses the ground. He curses the animal world. He curses the serpent. But while he's cursing the serpent, he brings a curse upon the creature that's behind the serpent. And that's found there in verse 15. He says here, I'll put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. There's some, two words that are important to see in this curse. One is the word enmity and the other is the word seed. The word enmity means hostility or hatred. God and man, whether we recognize it or not at this point, we're now in a state of hostility toward each other because of sin. Sin had brought that about. God stands against man because of his sinfulness and man by his own actions is demonstrating he hates God. Lying to God, refusing to take any responsibility for the sin that he had committed, both Adam and Eve both did that. In fact, when he, whenever they blame each other, they ultimately are blaming God because Adam, Adam, says, Adam says, the woman that you gave me, she did this to me. And then the woman says, the serpent did it to me. And, and really the implication is, God, you're the one that's responsible for this because you're the one in control of all the circumstances. And so they're at enmity with each other. But according to verse 15, God is saying, even though man is at enmity with me because of what the serpent did, one day it will be man who will be the ultimate enemy to the serpent. That's right. I'm going to turn this around, if you will. And I'm going to make enemy, the, your number one enemy, mankind, not me, mankind. Well, it will be him, but in another way. So that takes us to the second word, and that's seed. He uses the word seed twice in here, and the word seed just means offspring or children. And according to this verse, there's going to come a child into the world who's going to come for the purpose of destroying Satan. For the purpose of, of bruising his head. And that word bruise doesn't mean just injure and leave a little dark mark on their skin that will fade away in a few days. The word carries the idea of leaving something gaping, breaking, snapping, crushing, striking out and destroying. 
And God is saying that one day a seed of the woman is going to come for the purpose of destroying Satan for good. So here's the question I want to ask. Do you think Satan, with that prophecy now being put out, is saying, I'm just going to sit idly by and do nothing? No, in fact, the scripture itself right there in that verse says he's not going to do that. Look at the verse again. He says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. Satan has a seed as well. Absolutely he does. Or he will. Well, he already does at this point. He has Adam and Eve. They're his children now. In fact, if you remember Jesus Christ, as he's speaking to those religious leaders, he says to them, you are of your father, the devil. You read in the book of Revelation, Jesus says it twice when he's talking to the seven churches. He says that there are people that are called themselves Jews, but they are the synagogue of Satan. Twice he says that. Everybody, by the way, who belongs or who doesn't have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, it belongs to the serpent. Ephesians chapter two, listen to this. It says, and you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince and power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among, among whom we all had our conversation in time past and, uh, in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as others. You know what that verse is saying? We all belong to Satan and we all followed his lead before we were saved. Here's the point of this verse. Satan, just like he used this dumb, witless serpent to tempt the woman, will seek to use people who don't have a saving relationship with God through the coming seed of the woman. He's going to use those people to try to stop this promise from coming to pass. He will seek to destroy the child. In fact, look how the verse ends here. He says, I will put enmity between thy seed, I'm sorry, enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, look at the last part, and thou shalt bruise his heel. The image is that of a venomous snake reaching up and biting someone on the foot. And the serpent intends to destroy this child who's going to come. Destroy this child. Those who understand that prophecy understand ultimately how it finds its fulfillment. Its greatest part of the fulfillment is at the cross where the serpent reaches up one last time and strikes and tries to destroy him. But it was his own undoing when he did so. So tonight I want to trace that promise. God's faithful. And I want us to see just how Satan has sought to destroy that promise throughout human history. And once again, I want you to see God cannot fail. He always keeps his promises. He's always faithful. So the first attack that we see in scriptures, Cain and Abel. Genesis chapter four, it says, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. I just want to stop right there. Why does she even make that statement? Except for the fact, I think she believes the Genesis 3.15 promise and she thinks maybe this is the one. This is that one. 
Well, she doesn't say that to the next child uh, or about the next child because maybe she learned that's probably not the case. Maybe Cain wasn't so nice. And it says, and she bare Abel. And we know how the story plays out. Uh, Abel offers a sacrifice that's pleasing and acceptable to God. Cain doesn't. And because Cain's jealousy, he rises up, kills his younger brother, uh, kills his younger brother. Uh, and, and John has this actually to say about Cain. He said this, for this is the message that you've heard. This is first John chapter three, talking about Cain and Abel. He says, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of that wicked one and slew his brother. You know what motivated him? Probably jealousy, but you know who was behind him? The serpent reaching up to attack and destroy because maybe it's in Abel's line that this promise is coming. Well, the next big attack was upon the whole world. Genesis chapter number six, the world has become completely corrupted. God saw the wickedness of man, that it was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then Genesis six eleven, it says the earth was also corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence. And God looks upon the earth and behold, it's corrupt. All flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. Yes, man is corrupt by his own fallenness, but I guarantee you there was a spiritual element behind it. There was someone who wanted to destroy the promise. He doesn't know where this is going to play out. He doesn't know who's going to be the mother of this child. He doesn't know how all these details are going to work out. So he's doing everything he can to destroy the promise. But there was one righteous man that God preserved. Amen. Through all of that wickedness, man who found grace in the eyes of the Lord, Noah, and God would start all of humanity over with Noah and his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. About 100 to 125 years, we see another attack take place. We talked about it this morning in Sunday school. This time it's at the Tower of Babel. Once again, Satan has corrupted the minds of those people that have now multiplied upon the face of the earth. They've come down from the mountains of Ararat and have moved down into the plains of Shinar. And instead of spreading out and doing what God told them to do, they decide to, to defy God and build their city and build a tower with the, really the intention of replacing God altogether. And so God deals with this rebellion once again, not the same way before because of why? The promise. There's not going to be a flood again. He's not going to destroy the world with a flood, but instead he confuses the language and they can no longer work together anymore. And now they're forced to leave and the nations are born out of this judgment. So now who's Satan going to work on? Who's he going to try to destroy? Well, that's when we come to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter number 12, we see God once again making a second promise now. A second promise about the child who's going to come. Look at the scripture. Genesis chapter 12. If you want to follow me, if not, I will read it. But Genesis chapter 12, 1, it says this. Now the Lord had said unto Abraham, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house into a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation and I will bless thee and make thy name great and thou shalt be a blessing and I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. I want you to see that last line there. 
God tells Abraham that through him, all the families of the earth will be blessed. In other words, Abraham's family is going to be the focal point now where God begins to bring this child into the world. He, through Abraham, all the families of the earth are going to receive salvation blessings that come through somebody in Abraham's line. Where do you think the focus of the attack is now going to be aimed at? So from that point on, we're going to see this concerted effort from Satan to go after the people of Abraham. I think it's an amazing thing that, that God actually tells Abraham, he says, I'm going to bless them that bless thee and curse him that curses thee or curse them that curse thee. He knows you're going to be attacked. He knows the people of Abraham are going to be the source of focus of attack. And God is saying, I'm going to be with you, Abraham, no matter what comes your way, no matter what assaults you, no matter what seeks to destroy you, because I intend to bring my promise to pass. I'm faithful. I think the first point of attack we actually see after God finally gives, and, and we can maybe look at every last little one, but I, I think one of the big ones we begin to see is the, the very first intimate attack that happens is right in his own family after he has the child, Isaac, he's weaned, and Ishmael begins to mock him and go after him. And Abraham is forced to remove him out. But I think the big one that we see is the Egyptian attack. As we continue to read through Genesis and you go through, you find out that a drought comes upon the land and, and through a series of circumstances, Joseph is there in Egypt and Joseph is able to bring uh, the family of Israel into the land of Egypt for safety, for food and for protection right there in the land. And when they get into the land, they, eventually somebody rises up that doesn't know Joseph. Some Pharaoh rises up that's not a friend to the people of Israel, that's not a friend to Joseph. And it tells us that he begins to turn upon them and he begins to lay, lay hold on them and treat them like slaves and puts them in bondage and begins to go after their children, killing their children. And God raises up a deliverer who will bring a judgment against those people. Moses begins to bring the plagues. Now, obviously, Moses is not the, the miracle worker. It's God who ultimately is doing the work. Then after that, they, free, they are freed from the, the nation of Egypt. The very first attack that happens, Exodus chapter number 17, are the Amalekites. As they've come out, they've been, they've been brought through the Red Sea. Now they're in the wilderness and they're attacked. Boom. And then we see for a good part of their own struggle, it was their own stubbornness. Their enemy wasn't just working from without. He was also working from within. Stubbornness at Mount Sinai, building the, making the golden calf and worshiping it, turning back their back on the covenant they had made with God. Stubbornness at the edge of Canaan land. Ten spies went in that were bad. Two spies went in that were good. We know the song, right? Ten were bad, two were good. And they chose to believe the ten. And God says, okay, then I guess if you're going to be this stubborn and continue to do what you're doing, you're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Really, in a sense, to purge out these people. And then in the final year of their wilderness wandering, uh, while they're right on the edge of about to go into the land of Canaan, they're attacked by the Amorites, Sihon and Og, 
who sought to go to war with Israel uh, when Israel had done nothing to provoke it. Numbers chapter 21. And then the Moabites tried to bring a curse upon them through the pagan prophet named Balaam. Numbers 25. And God turns it around to a blessing every time. And then it's time for them to conquer the land of Canaan. And, and God continually warned them that before they came into the land, that they were to beware of the people of that land, that they were not to adopt the things of that land, that they were to show no mercy to those people, and they were to seek to drive them out, destroy them, so that they don't become like them. No intermarrying with these people. Why? Because these people will corrupt you. Will corrupt Israel they will turn your heart away from God. And ultimately, your purpose may be marred to the point it's irreparable. So ask the question, did they obey? Did they do what God told them to do? No. <laughs> no, it becomes a problem. In fact, it's not just a problem right in the time of the judges. It's a problem that exists all the way through their history. Because they didn't do what they were supposed to do during the time of the judges, they continually dealt with the enemies of the land. They were, a, they were a thorn in their side all their time. You go in the time of the judges, what's that, what's that identifying line that said there in the time of the judges? It says it a couple different times. In those days, there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Israel continually allows the paganism of the surrounding nations to influence their way to live. And so God continually brings one enemy after another, after another to chasten them and bring them back to himself. He's continually preserving the line, even though it's being attacked over and over and over and over, sometimes without, sometimes within. And so finally, Israel gets a king. They chose the king, by the way, not only because they wanted to be like the other nations, which that was first problem, but because they hoped this king could take care of their enemies. Because after all, this king is head and shoulders above everybody else. He surely could take on the Philistines. He surely can destroy them. They are putting their trust in the strength of men, not in the strength of God. So King Saul, is he a good king? Well, he was little in his eyes at one point. But he became big in his own eyes and didn't obey God when God told him to deal with the Amalekites. And so God finally says, it's time for you to go. I'm seeking for a man after my own heart. And so then the kingdom shifts to a person named David, a man after God's own heart. And it's this time where we see the third promise given. The third promise given. We saw the promise given at the garden. We see the promise given with Abraham, and now we're going to see the promise given to David. If you want to turn to 2 Samuel chapter number 7, you can. If not, just listen. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse number 12. It says, and when those days uh, be fulfilled, or when thy days be fulfilled, he says, thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, and I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, and I will be his father, and he shall be my son, 
If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. Now it is a veiled promise. And by the way, all of them have really been veiled to some degree. They, God doesn't give every last bit of information, but this is one of those that is a promise. And David appears to understand it. Not only will he have a son that will build the, the temple, which is what he wanted to do. Not only will he have a son who will build the temple, but God has given it, David a promise that this kingdom that David has will never be stripped away from people in the line of David. It'll always be preserved. And even if there's a bad king that comes out of that line, God says, I will chasten that king, but I'll keep the line intact. I'm keeping the line intact. And then he says, but I'm going to establish this kingdom forever. It's a veiled promise, but we actually he seems to recognize what this promise is talking about. Uh, let me read you another place where we see this promise given in Isaiah chapter 9. We're coming close to Christmas. I'm excited about that. Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born. Unto us... The son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And listen to this. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment, with justice from henceforth forever. And listen to this last line. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform it. Who's making sure this promise is going to come to pass? Not men, not people who think they can work all the details out. The God who made a promise back in Genesis chapter 3.15 says, I'm going to fulfill my promise. One that will sit on David's throne will sit on there to rule forever. God doesn't need man's help to accomplish his promises. Now, there's more in there we can pick up, but I, I'm trying to be quick here. So now that promise of the coming seed of the woman has been more clarified, where do you think the attack now is going to be aimed? It was aimed on all of humanity for a time because it was through the seed of the woman. Then now it was focused on Abraham and it was focused on the people of Abraham. And so that became the attack. Now it's one particular person in the line of Abraham. David and his line. It only takes just a few chapters after this promise before you begin to see an, a major attack that happens. It's in chapter 11 of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel 7 is what we read the promise. 2 Samuel 11, I'm not going to read it, but I just want to tell you where it's at. 2 Samuel 11, there's one major event that happens in the life of David that becomes a source of trouble for David's family, for David's kingdom, all the rest of David's life. The sin with Bathsheba. Who do you think was involved in the temptation? Who do you think was there trying to destroy David and destroy David's kingdom? Because of David's sin, we see that get worse. We see Tamar and Ammon, the, the, the raping that happens in that. We see the murder of Ammon by Absalom. Then we see Absalom with this a coup that he has against David's kingdom where he tries to drive David out and he tries to overtake the kingdom. All of this is an attack 
that really is resulting from the fact that he didn't do what he was supposed to do and because Satan had his upper hand here trying to strike and destroy the promise. It was never about David. It was never about Abraham. It was never about Adam and Eve. It was ultimately about Jesus Christ, the one who would come and destroy him. That was the attack. That has always been the attack. You think the attack is going to stop after David? King Solomon. He starts off well. He has a heart for God. He has a heart to seek after God's wisdom. But eventually he goes corrupt because of his lust, because he satisfies or tries to satisfy his sexual lust, 700 wives, 300 concubines. And as a result, he begins to let his heart be pulled away by his wives to follow after gods, even to the point that he builds temples to these false gods in his own land in Jerusalem and all around the land of Israel. So what does God do? Well, he said he's going to chasten. He, he said that to David in the promise that if one of your sons is corrupt, I'm going to chasten. How does he chasten this son? He divides the kingdom. He strips the kingdom away he takes 10 of those tribes and gives them to another person, in which we find out turns out to be Jeroboam and gives one to the house of David, Judah. And so the focal point at this point is on the kingdom of Judah now. Out of the 20 kings slash queen, they did have a queen, they had only five that turned out to be good kings. Only five. Out of the 19 kings of Israel, which we're not really focusing on because that's not where the line of promise is going to work its way through, uh, none of them were. All right? They were bad kings all along. But out of the good kingdom, out of the line where you would expect to see godly kings show up because this is the promised line, there's only five. And throughout the history of the kings of Judah, multiple threats come against the kingdom. We see multiple assassinations of kings that happen. We see foreign kingdoms seeking to rise up, making alliances with each other to destroy Judah and remove their king. In, Acts, in, in fact, Isaiah chapter 7, the place where we see the prophecy of the child, of the woman who will have a child, the virgin who will have the child, we see that attempt being talked about right there in that, in that passage where you have Syria and Israel joining hands trying to destroy Judah. We see the wicked queen, Athaliah, trying to destroy the line of David to take over the throne. And she does so for six years, thinking she has gotten rid of everyone in the line, except for one that got spared. One that got spared. The promise is still intact. And the amazing thing, she gets removed, right? They, they, they bring this child on. We see the Assyrians seeking to overtake Jerusalem, camping outside the walls and trying to get the people to turn against their own king, King Hezekiah, who was trying to lead the people to trust in God for deliverance. 2 Kings 18. And even some of the kings of Judah seem hell-bent to corrupt Judah so bad that God might just change his mind against the promise. Listen to this. King Manasseh, a horrible king. 
He offers his child up as a sacrifice to a pagan god. He sets up groves to Baal. He uses enchantments. He defiles the temple of God. And his behavior was so bad. Listen to what God said about what he was going to do to the people of Judah, specifically in this line. He said this, 2 Kings chapter 21, 11, he said, because Manasseh, king of Judah, hath done these abominations and hath done wickedly above all that the Amorites did, which were before him, and hath made Judah also to sin with his idols. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such evil upon, the, upon Jerusalem and Judah that whosoever heareth it, both his ears shall tingle. You know what that is? This is going to be something amazing what's about to happen. And he says, and I will stretch over Jerusalem the line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem as a man wipeth the dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And listen to this. And I will forsake the remnant of mine inheritance and deliver them into the hand of their enemies, and they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies because they have done that which was evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came forth out of Egypt, even until this day. Wow. Question, is God not going to be faithful? Is God going to break his promise that he made to mankind all the way at the beginning? That he remade to Abraham, that he said to David, is he going to break the promise? Well, let me read you another passage that's written by one of the last prophets before Babylon comes and takes them into the foreign land. Because that's what that promise was about. That's what, I'm sorry, that's what God was saying there in 2 Kings 21, that he's going to bring Babylon against them and Babylon's going to take them and pull them out of their own land. Listen what Jeremiah says. <clears throat> Chapter 29, verse 11, he says, For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, saith the Lord, as I'm, I'm letting you be driven away into bondage. These are my thoughts. Thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you an, ex, an expected end. Then shall you call upon me and you shall go and pray unto me and I will hearken unto you and you shall seek me and find me. And when you shall search for me with all your hearts and I will be found of you, saith the Lord, and I will turn away your captivity and will gather you from all the nations and from all the places whither I have driven you, saith the Lord, and I will bring you again into this place which I caused you to be carried away. God is saying, I'm not done with you. I'm not done with the promise that I made that is, that consider, that, that is concerning you I'm, and concerning the people of the world through you. God's not done because he has a plan to bring the Redeemer. And there's going to be more attacks even after this. When they are brought back into the land in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, you think, God, you think Satan's done attacking? You think it's Satan's done destroying? No, we have a whole book. A whole book in the, in the post-exile time that's called the book of Esther. That's about somebody trying to destroy them. Remember Haman who convinces the king of Persia to sign a decree that all the Jews throughout the Persian empire be destroyed on the 13th day of the 12th month. And all of that's playing out and, and we see the invisible hand of God, the providential working of God playing out and God delivers them through Esther and Mordecai 
and their intervention saves them. In the book of Daniel, Daniel highlights some of the awful things that are going to be done against Israel during the days of the Greeks, when the Greeks come upon them in what's called the intertestamental times. Antiochus Epiphanes is going to come in and try to defile the temple and trying to destroy their, their, their character, get them to turn away from the law and all of that. And yet he talks about that there are going to be people of courage who are going to rise up and they're going to drive them out. Talking about Judas Maccabees. And so I want you to see what I've been doing all the way through here to try to weave this together a little bit. It's gone from broad, narrower, narrower, narrower. Do you know, we don't actually get a timeline exactly of when this promised seed is going to come until the book of Daniel. Book of Daniel chapter nine says he's going to come and gives us even a date and when to start the clock. Tick, 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 tick. Tick, 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 490, 489, 487, right? You have that going on, 488, 487. Let's get my numbers backwards. And we know he's coming. The countdown. He's going to come in the time of the fourth kingdom. You were Babylon. You had the Medes and the Persians. You have the Greeks that are talked about. And in that fourth kingdom, he's coming. And so Satan spends his time focusing on destroying those people. Some pretty awful things happen to those people as a result. And finally, finally, the promise comes to pass. We celebrate it every year, don't we? I love Christmas. I absolutely love Christmas. I know some people think it's not a holiday worth celebrating. I think it's absolutely worth celebrating. Because we're celebrating that God is faithful, that he keeps his promise. But is, is Satan done? Is Satan done? I mean, God brought the child into the world. It's, not, it's over with, Satan. You've lost. You're not going to win. Matthew chapter number two. You have a little child that's been born and there's some wise men that have come to worship the one born king of the Jews. And they go into Jerusalem thinking they're going to find out the, the news because they don't, they, they don't know exactly they're following a star. But the star, it doesn't seem to be leading them exactly. And that's a whole other message. But they see it again later. But, so they go to the king, King Herod, who they think can tell them where the child should be born. And the king, doing some secret background work, goes to the priest and the priest says, well, Bethlehem is supposed to be the place where the child is supposed to be born. And then they leave. And, but, but the king is basically trying to get them to find the child so he can do what? Destroy him. Who's behind that? Who wants the child to be dead? Satan. And God miraculously saves the child. And we continue to go through the Gospels where we see one attack after another, after another, after another from the wicked one trying to destroy the seed of the woman. We see it from his own people of Nazareth who want to throw him off a cliff and stone him to death. We see it, even though it's spirit-led, in the, in the temptation in the wilderness 
We see it with the people trying to trick and trap Jesus over and over and over to get him to say something, to do something, to discredit him and to turn all the people against him. We see it after he even makes bold claims that I and my father are one and they want to pick up stones to stone him. And yet somehow he escapes all of those times. In fact, John makes it clear that the reason why he escapes because it wasn't his time. Because there's someone performing this. Someone in control of preserving this child. At the last point, we see <clears throat> Jesus himself says, now was the hour of darkness. Now is the time. John chapter 14. Where darkness is now going to begin to set on in John 15 and 16 and 17 and 18 and 19. Now the serpent will be free to attack and appear to destroy. The cross. Listen to this. I love this. Second Corinthians 521 says this, speaking of what God would do with his son. He says, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The cross and the suffering and what happened in, the, in all of that that was going on in the spiritual realm, I believe Satan thought he was going to win. I believe think Satan thought he was getting the upper hand. Finally, he was able to destroy. Finally, he could, he could undo the promise and save himself from the curse. And ultimately, what he was accomplishing and the wisdom of God was accomplishing his, the deliverance of people from him. <laughs> Listen to this. It says as in Hebrews 2, 9, it says, But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. And listen to this, 1 John 3, 8. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. He came for the purpose of destroying Satan. He came to undo the bondage we were all in. And here's, here's an amazing thing. Listen to this. This is Colossians 2, 14. It says, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Now, I would say from a human vantage point, the cross doesn't sound like a place of triumph. The cross sounds like a place of defeat, destruction, but here he says the cross was a place where the devil was beat. He triumphed, Jesus said, it says here, Jesus triumphed and he spoiled the devil on the cross. Amen. Love this one. Hebrews 2, verse 14. It says, for as much then as children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. He became one of us that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death. That is the devil and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. <laughs> the final 
C, we've looked at really the last two before we get to the final C. We've seen Christ and cross. And has God showed himself to be faithful? Absolutely. He's faithful. 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 So the final C, we take it by faith because we haven't seen it play out yet. But we know that God has been faithful all along. No matter what has come, no matter what has stood in the way, no matter what attacks have, have been brought against the seed of the woman, the final sea consummation. And I'm not going to give time as I did with all the others to lead up here, but let me just lay it out this way. Second Peter chapter three, verse eight says this about, in a sense, the finality of it all. Second Peter three, eight says this, but beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some men count slackness. What's he talking about? He's not slack concerning the fact he's coming back again and he's going to restore everything. But as long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But listen to this. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat and the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. It's all going to be destroyed. All this that we could want to hold on to and want to embrace, that's all going away when he comes again. And he says, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness." That heaven and that earth that was created on day one. And we watched the, the development of that creation through the week. And then we saw the corruption that came and how it's defiled the entire creation. And the entire creation has is, is been subjected to this bondage, to this vanity. And we ourselves groan with this bondage that we are in. And we're waiting for the day of redemption the day and when we will be made whole again. When the kingdom will be restored again that was lost when Adam and Eve disobeyed. Our focus is on that promise of him coming again and restoring everything back. And back, by the way, it's not just back. It's better. <laughs> when he comes back. Let me give you a couple more, okay? And we'll, we'll be coming down to the end here. Revelation 21. <laughs> Verse one. If you want to look, this might be good for you to see it as we come to our conclusion here. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. They're gone. <laughs> and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. 
You know what that's a, I, I believe that's a reference to that God dwells among men. Jesus is in their midst. He will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all their tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. It's all gone. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. The idea of that word new doesn't mean new in relation to time. Like it just brand new. It's just now here. But new in the sense of quality. Newness that will never go old. For all eternity, no corruption ever again. No chance of sin entering in again and destroying it all. In fact, if you keep reading, he talks about what's not going to be allowed in there. What's not going to be allowed to come in and defile and corrupt it ever again. It'll never have a chance. Revelation 22, listen to this, as he says it again, Revelation 22, and he gets a little more specific. He said, he showed me, verse number one, a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the midst of the street and on either side of the river, there was the tree of life, which bare 12 manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. He's healing them. And there shall be no more. What's the word? Curse. The curse is gone. But the throne of God and of the lamb shall be in it and his servants shall serve him and they shall see his face and his name shall be in their foreheads and there shall be no night there and there shall need no candle and neither light of the sun for the Lord God giveth them light and they shall reign forever and ever and ever and ever and ever with no chance of curse ever coming again. Do you see how this is all flowing? It, creation, the, we see God creating all these things and he's, and he's noting it as good, 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 good. And after he creates man and he marries the man and the woman together, he says, it's very good. But there's one thing in that garden you're not allowed to touch, Adam, or not allowed to eat, not touch. Eat, Adam, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat of it. The day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. I don't think it was very long after that when they messed up. And then we begin to see the fall as it plays out. The world gets more and more corrupt to the point God has to judge it, catastrophe. And really sets sort of a, 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 a uh, identifying mark of how God is. He's holy and he cannot tolerate sin. And it really becomes the, the, the fore announcer of a future judgment that will come upon all the world again the heavens and the earth being burned up and destroyed. But mankind hasn't been made whole by a judgment because it only takes 100 to 150 years and man rebels once again. In fact, God even said that Genesis chapter nine, he says the thoughts of their heart is still only evil continually. So confusion happens, Tower of Babel, split the nations. And then over a period of a few thousand years, God keeps the promise, brings the child into the world. The child does exactly what he came to do to bear our sins, to 
bear the curse. Our curse, what we deserved. The one who hangs on a tree is cursed. He bears our curse. And he says, it is finished. It is finished. Raises from the dead, up from the grave, he arose. Ascends back to the right hand of the Father. And through the process right now, we are in the time where the gospels to go into all the world because God's not willing that any should perish. Because he, there's coming the great final sea that he's preparing for all of humanity. He wants to restore them back to the garden, if you will, but even greater than it was before it fell. That's what we look for. God is faithful. He's faithful. This year has been a very difficult year for Esther and I. We've had a lot of struggles that we've gone through, more than I think I've ever gone through in my entire life as a person, let alone a believer. Even to the point, Brother Gaddis, there was a time I was considering calling this off because it was getting so difficult. I'm glad it didn't. But you know what has sustained me? I said, God's faithful. God keeps his promises. That God loves me and that no matter what's going on, this isn't the end. If anything, the troubles that we've gone through have made me look forward to the final sea. That he's coming again. That he's going to restore all things. And this veil I live in and this vanity I live in is not always going to be the case. So I ask for you to have such a great confidence in our God. To love him with all your heart and trust him. Even when it's dark. Even when it's difficult. Even when you see things that are going on in the news that are hard to explain and hard to understand. And it just seems like we're out of control most of the Old Testament seems to be out of control. Have you noticed it? And yet through all of the out of control frenzy, God was keeping the promise. And God will keep the promise of his second coming as well. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for loving us. Thank you for being good to us. Thank you for being faithful. We just ask, Lord, that you will help us to trust you in the dark times. We've seen how good you are and how much you love us and, and how you kept your promises. No matter how many times Satan tried to destroy the promise, you kept your promise. And we can trust you because you are faithful. You cannot deny yourself. Help us to trust you. And we pray that you'll be glorified in our response here tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.